So let's come to God in prayer now. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that we can um, meet together tonight, even though these new restrictions are our reality for the next six weeks. Help us now as we come to your word. Please help me to faithfully teach and apply it. And fill us all with your spirit so that we might be moved to trust in your word and live in conformity to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, a number of years ago, uh, while travelling through New South Wales, Ruth and I were invited to a beautiful but remote property that belonged to Ruth's auntie and uncle. Eager to see the property and to spend time with some of her cousins, we made a slight detour in our trip and headed for the property. Now, while the property did meet all our expectations, the drive there certainly didn't. You see, I had expected a lovely drive through the countryside that ended at this wonderful property, but what I got was the worst trip of my life. You see, now, while I did get lost multiple times, as I'm sure some of you are already guessing, that actually wasn't the biggest problem. The biggest problem was that all the roads there were just littered with potholes. I think a recent flood had impacted the area, but it was just awful. I would swerve to avoid a really big pothole, only to thump over a smaller one that I didn't see. For K after K, I was hunched over the wheel, white-knuckled, wide-eyed, wanting to turn around and thinking that the next bump was going to take out our little Toyota. See, when I set out on that journey, I expected one thing, but I got another. Because my expectations were wrong, I was ill-prepared, extremely stressed, and just wanting to turn around. Right expectations are important. They help us to prepare for reality and not be taken off guard. And you see, that's what Acts 14 does for us, for those who wish to follow Jesus as Lord. Acts 14 helps us to expect and prepare for the bumpy journey of opposition along the road to glory. See, if you look at verse 22, that verse says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, it would have been one thing to have turned back on that journey and miss out on the beautiful country property that we experienced. But you see, it's certainly another thing to turn our backs on Jesus and miss out on the kingdom of God. But that is what is at stake for us if we do not have our expectations in the right place as followers of Jesus. So what we're going to do tonight is think about the persecution that we see in this passage And then we'll consider the way Paul and Barnabas prepare the new churches to stand strong in the face of opposition so that they too will endure for the sake of Christ. So let's begin by looking at the uh, picture of persecution that Paul and Barnabas experience as they continue to preach the gospel in the ancient cities of Iconium and Lystra. Uh, Luke, the author of Acts, uh, shows us that it's in these cities that the potholes really start to increase in size. Now, I don't know if you've ever 
um, had any kind of traumatic experience or event happen to you in your life, but if you have, you'll know that that sort of trauma stays with you. Uh, I was physically assaulted once by a group of young guys, and that moment of sort of intense hostility, that just stays with me. And this was certainly the case for Paul, who experienced hostility on a whole nother level. You see, what he went through in these two cities, he and Barnabas, did not leave them. In fact, we see Paul going back to this moment in his second letter to Timothy where he specifically mentions what happens in our chapter tonight. In 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 11, Paul says, You, Timothy, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things I went through, what happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Now, Paul and Barnabas' persecution in Iconium and Lystra, I think, can be summed up in three increasing stages of hostility. One, the initial suspicion. Two, the alarming threat. And three, the open violence. So first, the initial suspicion, verses 1 to 4. Uh, having been run out of Antioch in, Pisidian, uh, in Pisidia, Paul and Bartimus head southwest to the city of Iconium, which is in the green there. If you squint, you'll see it. As was their custom, they head first into the Jewish synagogue and begin preaching Christ there. Uh, their preaching, we're told, so effective that a great number of Jews and Greeks believe. And actually, in the beginning of chapter 14 of Acts, things actually look pretty good. Jesus is proclaimed, uh, people are believing. Might this be a pleasant drive after all? Well, no, the first pothole appears in verse 2, doesn't it? But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. You see, suspicion now starts to creep into the city against Paul and Barnabas. And notice that the opposition and suspicion doesn't come directly against the message, but the messengers. Uh, we know from verse 1 that the message was effective. Many Iconian people found it compelling. And, and later in verse 3, we wonder that, that we read that the message was confirmed by great signs and wonders. So what do you do if, if the message is actually a bit hard to argue against? Well, you go for the credibility of the messengers. You start questioning their motives, slandering them, spreading rumours. And next thing you know, people are walking around saying, oh, did you hear about those Christians who have come here? I heard that they want our money. Oh, yeah, I heard that they want to divide our families and brainwash our children. Poison minds. But notice in verse 3 that Paul and Barnabas don't abandon ship at this point. They don't move on. They stay put and keep preaching. Though now Luke describes it as bold preaching. Look at verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and miracles. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. Some in Iconium were sold out for the message of the gospel. 
others remain suspicious of the messengers. Now, I think many of us can probably relate to the feeling of living in a society that is often suspicious of Christians, Bible-believing Christians anyway. Over the last few years, there have been a few uh, cultural flashpoints that have heightened this suspicion among some, I think. Uh, In the same-sex marriage debate a couple of years back, Christians uh, who held to the traditional uh, view of marriage uh, were often sort of described in various talk shows and media, almost in homophobic terms, callous, weirdly obsessed with other people's business. And when the topic of hell came up in the media last year, many tended to view Christians who held to the doctrine of hell as judgmental or just a bit stupid. Uh, I was asked by a person who's not a Christian last week how I would respond to the charge that Christians are intolerant and exclusive, homophobic and transphobic. Uh, I.e., most people know that there are a few things a little bit sinister about Christians. So what's the deal? Now, in God's grace, I was able to have a good conversation with this person, but I'll be honest, it's not pleasant feeling that as you speak, there is a degree of suspicion hanging over you as a person. Most of us don't like being ostracized from the in-group in society, feels yuck, it may sometimes even cost us friendships or, or advancements in our job. There was suspicion in the world of Paul and Barnabas, and I think there is suspicion in our world. So first comes the suspicion for these two, but the potholes start getting bigger as they find out and about an alarming threat to do them harm. Look at verse 5. There was a plot afoot among both Jews and Gentiles together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. Now, this is pretty scary stuff when you, when you think about it. See, it wasn't just ordinary citizens involved in this plot, but their leaders, presumably those in positions of power in the city, those who were supposed to uphold the law and uphold law and order, they're in on it too. I mean, I would have found that terrifying. And this is actually some of the terror that many in the persecuted church today live amongst, the fear that those who are actually supposed to protect you in society might also be out to get you. Well, the situation in Iconium simply becomes too dangerous, and so Paul and Barnabas flee to another city called Lystra, to the southwest of Iconium. And there we're told they continue to preach the gospel, So first comes the initial suspicion, Uh, then comes the alarming threat, the final and the biggest pothole of persecution actually happens in this new city of Lystra, where open violence breaks out against the Apostle Paul. But you'll notice as you heard the Bible reading that this violence doesn't happen immediately, does it? Luke records certain events that lead up to this horror. Events that speak to us of the idolatry and the fickleness of the human heart. So what happens in the city of Lystra? Well, it all starts with the healing of a lame man. And we'll read that in verse 8 and following. 
In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Now imagine you're just out, you're one of the locals, you're out shopping in the center market, and you see this happen. That man that you've been passing by day after day, year after year, all of a sudden, he's up on his feet. Well, look at how the crowd responds in verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted out in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Hermes being one of the gods who was a herald and a messenger. See, amazed by what they see, these people start declaring the gods are among us. Zeus and Hermes. Now you get the picture that Paul and Barnabas may not quite know what's actually happening at this moment though. After all, this is all being spoken in a foreign language. But things start to become clear for them when they see who arrives next. Look at verse 13. The priest of Zeus, uh, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. See, imagine being mistaken for a god. What would you do if you were mistaken for a god? Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever heard uh, of the Prince Philip movement. Uh, I have a weird fascination with it, but you may have never heard of it. But there is a particular religious sect in Vanuatu who believes that the husband of Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth II is a divine being. It's thought by some that this belief gained traction when the royal couple made an official visit to Vanuatu in 1974. When Prince Philip found out about this community a number of years later, his response was to send them an officially signed photograph of himself. They worship me as a god? How interesting. Have a photograph sent. It doesn't sound exactly like Prince Philip was exceptionally worried about this movement. But you see, in stark contrast to Philip, Paul and Barnabas are absolutely mortified to find out that the crowd thinks they're gods. And you see that in verse 14. Look at what they do. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. Get rid of those bulls, get rid of those wreaths. We're not gods. You see, for Paul and Barnabas, this wasn't just harmless confusion. It was an idolatrous abomination. This crowd was taking the glory that rightly belonged to the creator and giving it to two of his creations. That is the heart of all our idolatry, taking what belongs to God and giving it to the creation, and it deserves judgment. And so it's out of love for God that he would get the true glory, but also out of love for these people that they would know the truth and be saved that Paul and Barnabas take the time to speak to them of the true God, 
And you see it in verse 15. They say, we too are only human like you. We aren't the good news. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless idols to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And you see, we can learn from Paul's evangelistic approach here with these people. He starts where they're at. They don't know the scriptures, so he doesn't start quoting the scriptures. He shows them that the true God is not just more powerful than Zeus or Hermes, but he's actually more kind as well. He doesn't just tell them that they're wrong, but that they're missing out on something far greater. He tells them that they can't go on getting this wrong. They've been praising the wrong God. They need to change. He speaks at their level and into their world and experiences. And you see, different people have different understandings of who God is. And so if we want to engage them with the gospel in love, we need to know where to start. What is it that my neighbor lives for? What is it about the gospel that is so much better that they need to hear? And you can feel the desperation in Paul and Barnabas to reorient the worship of this crowd to the true God. But notice how inclined the human heart is towards idolatry. You see it there in verse 18, don't you? Even with these words, they had difficulty from keeping the crowd, from sacrificing to them. Now, in many ways, the idolatry that we see here in Lystra is really a picture of the idolatry that pervades all of humanity, uh, that pervades all of Melbourne. Though some in our city do worship actual idols and false gods, I think much of our idolatry is far less overt and even considered very normal, very healthy. You see, instead of giving our hearts to God, we tend to give Uh, give our hearts to all the creature comforts of Western society. Uh, We're much more excited about a meal at our favourite restaurant than we are about God, our creator. We are perhaps more like those whose God is their stomach, says Paul in Philippians 3.19. And sometimes this even becomes explicit in the way certain pleasures are actually advertised in our world. I saw this sign up a while back. Some call it a religious experience. We call it Kentucky Fried Chicken. This may be more true than the creators of that ad. Realize we give our glory to the created things, not the creator. Our world, like Lystra, is idolatrous. You, me, everybody needs the message of Jesus. Because the message of Jesus tells us that we can be forgiven of our sinful idolatry through Jesus' sacrificial death and his powerful resurrection. In Jesus, we will find true satisfaction as we experience life with God, the God we have previously ignored. But the people of Lystra weren't just idolatrous, 
They were fickle. Like the crowd in Jesus' day, they praise one minute, they seek to kill the next. And this is where the biggest pothole in the road appears for particularly Paul. See, look at how quickly this crowd in Lystra is turned and swayed when the Jews from Antioch and Iconium come into the city. Read with me verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. I mean, this is a violent scene we read of here. You can imagine it, right? The angry shouting, the wild throws, many of which probably missed Paul, but those that connected with him, smashing into his head, the blood, the trauma, and finally the unconsciousness. See, why did these people do such a horrible thing to Paul? Not because he was a thief, not because he was a murderer, not because he was a liar, because he followed Jesus and proclaimed his name to others. In John fifteen twenty, Jesus says, Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. We live in a world in rebellion against God. So when we come bearing God's name, preaching the Son of God, that rubs up against the world that does not want to know God. Paul is knocked down, but in God's grace, we see him get back up again. This comes in at, uh, in his words to Timothy I read earlier, where he says, yet the Lord rescued me from all of this. And you see it in verse 20. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got back up and went into the city. Now what's shocking is not just Paul's sudden recovery, it's the fact that he goes straight back into the place that wanted to kill him. Back into the lion's den, and as we'll see, Paul goes back again to Lystra on his return trip in verse 21. I think this is gospel grit at the highest level. An absolute commitment to preach Jesus, strengthen new disciples no matter what the cost. And you see, this gospel grit is what happens when you're totally sold out for Jesus, who you know loved you enough to die for you and for everyone else who trusts in him. In fact, that's how Paul sums it up uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all. Christ's love can transform us so that we're not only able to withstand persecution, but but able to keep ministering within it. Uh, This was true for Gladys Staines. The Staines family were missionaries in India who worked among people with leprosy. In January of 1999, Graham Staines and his two sons were attacked and killed while sleeping in their car by Hindu extremists. Only Graham's wife, Gladys, and their remaining daughter, Esther, were left. 
Yet despite what had been done to her and her family, Gladys was compelled by Christ to keep ministering in the same region that she had suffered so much harm. This is what Gladys said uh, in a later interview. I feel sad that I do not have my husband to support me, to guard me, but these are just momentary emotions of sadness which also fill me with great hope, the hope of heaven and of being reunited with my husband and children in paradise and seeing the Father face to face. This guarantee fills me with consolation. These sisters of mine in Kandamahal who have sacrificed their husbands for the sake of Christ, I tell them, be strong, stay strong, and Christ will be your support, your companion, your guide, and your strength. Compelled by Christ in the face of great persecution. I've been convicted this week as I've been reflecting on uh, the severe persecution that I've, I've read in Acts 14. I've been convicted how much I sometimes neglect to pray for my Christian brothers and sisters undergoing severe, severe persecution in our world. Like the Apostle Paul, like the Staines family, many Christians live under the threat of violence and death. Can I encourage you also to be praying for them? Now that might mean you need to to inform yourself of what's happening. There's a great website called the Barnabas Fund uh, that you can look up that will give you information about what is happening in the persecuted church and how you can be praying and financially supporting them. But you see, we need to be like the disciples in verse 20 who gather, who gather around a brother and sister when they have been knocked down. But for many of us, we are living in a world of suspicion and maybe not necessarily of direct threat, though some Christians in Australia do. And for many of us, suspicion alone is actually uncomfortable enough, thank you very much. I, I sure don't like it. I'm pretty sure you don't, don't either. You see, we want to be liked by our work colleagues and our friends. We don't want the exclusion or the awkwardness in the lunchroom. We don't want any of those things. The risk, and the risk is always there, that if we're not prepared... We might just say, well, I just am tired of driving down this road anymore. I want to give up. Well, God's word is telling us tonight not to give up. So now that we've seen a picture of the kind of potholes that exist on the road to heaven, how can we better prepare for the rest of the trip? That's what we're going to think about now in Paul's final words to the churches that he visits on his return trip. So a picture of preparation. After visiting the city of Derby, where they preached the gospel and won over a large number of disciples, Paul and Barnabas make the call to return to their sending church of Antioch, the Antioch that's located back in Syria. But notice that they don't go there via the quickest route, which you can I don't have the map there, but they don't go via the quickest route, let me assure you. They take the long way back so that they can visit the newly formed churches and encourage the believers there. And I think this is actually a wonderful example of how important follow-up is. 
If we love people enough to share the gospel with them, we must love them enough to look after them if they have believed that gospel. Because believing the gospel often turns people's lives upside down and they need support, they need teaching, they need encouragement. See, Paul wasn't just interested in winning converts and moving on. He wanted to continue to strengthen and encourage those new churches. And this was particularly important in the cities of Iconium and Lystra that we've thought about tonight because these believers had seen some pretty traumatic stuff. They had seen Paul and Barnabas publicly opposed, slandered, run out of town and stoned for preaching the gospel. And I suspect that's just got to rattle you as a Christian. Do I actually want that in my life? I want what the gospel offers, but I'm not sure I could go through what they had to go through. And perhaps you've asked some of those sort of questions too. But notice as as Paul, in his response to some of those questions, that I assume he knows they would probably be asking, he actually doesn't sugarcoat anything for these new churches. In verse 20, uh, he is clear, we, all of us, must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to go through an initiation process to become a Christian or to be accepted by God. Jesus alone brings us to God and guarantees salvation for us through his death and resurrection. What it's saying is that the road to that glory, that glorious hope of heaven, will be marked by opposition. It was the case for our master, it will be the case for we who are his servants. But knowing this, we can be prepared. And and Paul speaks of three things uh, that will help the churches be prepared for that road ahead. A commitment to the faith, pastoral oversight, and dependence on the Lord ultimately. So let's consider briefly each one of these three things as we come to a close. First, the church is prepared for hardships when there is a commitment to the faith. See, look at what it says in verse 22. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Now, the faith that Paul speaks of here is the apostolic message. Everything Paul had taught them about God and his message of salvation in Jesus, the way of salvation and the life of salvation. All that is bound up now in our Bibles. The word of God is what we are called to remain true to. But notice that's the very thing that that we might be tempted to minimize or deny when opposition comes. People don't like the exclusive claim on salvation through Jesus alone, so maybe we're tempted to ignore that in our Bibles. People don't like God's attitude towards sexuality, so we're tempted to deny that part of Scripture. But Paul is saying, stay true to the truth revealed by the apostles and prophets, everything that we have now in the Bible. Hold fast to it. A different gospel is no gospel at all. And you see, I think part of what makes our current COVID situation extra sort of serious is just how much harder this moment makes it for us to actually get along to church and growth group. It's sometimes just hard 
to go through week after week those online sessions. I know I've spoken to a lot of you who are finding that difficult. But both church and growth group are two big contexts in which we hear the faith taught. You see, we've, we've been thinking tonight and we've heard the words of this passage and also Jesus telling us that persecutions, hardships will come. COVID-19 hasn't actually changed that. And if we're going to be prepared for those persecutions when they come, we need to make time for God's truth to be proclaimed to us. You see, the truth of the word reminds us that though the road is difficult, it's worth it. It tells us that we're heading towards a good destination and our Saviour is with us. One of the reasons I kept travelling on that road of potholes, I'm sure, is because Ruth kept reminding me of the truth. It's a tough road, but the destination's going to be great. The property will be worth it. The truth got me through that road. But the second way Paul helps prepare these churches for persecution is to establish pastoral oversight. And you see that in verse 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. When a church is rattled by opposition from the outside world, what helps is godly leadership. Leadership that will encourage people to keep holding fast to Jesus. Leadership that will keep teaching and preaching God's word with confidence that it alone carries life and truth. And that is what elders are charged to do. You'll probably recall last year when the topic of hell burst up into the media scene during the election cycle as a result of Israel Folau's Twitter post. This wasn't a moment of uh, any extreme persecution, but it was a moment that was uncomfortable for many Christians as they started having to have those conversations of hell in their workplace. It seemed to be a moment that may have fueled pre-existing suspicions about Christians being judgmental and the like. And I know some of you experienced some of that in your workplaces during that time. Well, one of the things I really appreciated about our senior minister, Neil, during that time is that he decided to preach directly on that subject that Sunday, that following Sunday. He took us to the Bible and to the words of Christ, and he reminded us of hell's truth and its place in God's judgment against all that is sinful and evil. And this gave us confidence to keep actually believing in that truth revealed in Scripture amidst the suspicion and opposition. And see, that's what we need from our leaders, our elders, our pastors. And I thank God that I do serve on a session of godly elders. Please keep praying for us as in our shepherding of you, particularly strength to pass you through further moments of uncomfortable opposition. But third, and primarily, these churches, our church, need to remain prayerfully dependent on the Lord. Having appointed the elders, Paul and Barnabas commit them, and, and I think too the churches as a whole, into God's care. With prayer and fasting, uh, they committed them into the Lord. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. God can be trusted to be with us in the face of persecution. He will give us grace to endure 
and keep us until that day of Christ's return. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If God was willing to send his son to die for us when we were his enemies, he is more than willing to look after us as his children when we face opposition. He will help us on that bumpy drive and ensure we make it safely to that wonderful destination, a destination that knows no more opposition, no more pain. You see, it wasn't Paul's internal strength that kept him going in these moments. It wasn't Gladys Stain's internal strength that kept her going. It, it hasn't been your internal strength that has kept you going through moments of opposition. It has been and always will be God's spirit in God's people. So keep depending on God's power, praying for help and grace as you travel that bumpy road to the kingdom of God. Uh, Now in verses 24 to 28, Luke records for us the trip back to the city of Antioch. There the um, evangelists speak of the door of faith that God had opened to the Gentiles. And next week we're going to Uh, we're going to see what impact that influx of Gentiles had on the church as a whole. But Acts 14 shows us both a picture of persecution but also a picture of preparation. A bumpy road but a wonderful destination. Uh, In closing, legend has it that uh, in that prior to his attempted crossing of Antarctica in 1914, the explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton took out an advert in a local paper which had the following words, men wanted for a hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. Now, why would anyone sign up to such a proposition? Well, I assume it's the possibility of that last line, honour and recognition, in the case of success. You see, the goal makes all the hazards worth it. This passage has shown us that the road to the kingdom of God is likewise a hazardous journey full of opposition. Opposition will come. But you see, Jesus, our captain, uh, he's promised, he's likewise told us that, but he promises that we will make it to our destination. Unlike Shackleton's ad, Jesus has made sure that our good goal of life with God is not just a possibility, but a certainty. Through this, though this life, sorry, through this life, we follow in the footsteps of our Savior who first suffered for us. So let's not be caught by surprise when we do face opposition. Let's expect it. Let's prepare for it by listening to God's word that saves us, praying for the leaders who shepherd us, and depending on God's on God who sustains us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we've been reminded from your word tonight that 
Uh, we follow in the footsteps of the Lord who suffered on our behalf. Help us by your spirit to be prepared for the hardships that will come as we follow Jesus. May we not shy away in those moments. May we persevere. And in persevere, give glory to the Lord Jesus who sustains us. Amen.